I love thinking about John weeping as the angel shows him a vision. And he's crying and weeping as he looks and beholds the book of life because he looks around and he doesn't see one worthy enough to open the scrolls. And he's crying out, who's worthy? Who is worthy to open the book? And I can see the angel there looking at him. Just, man, if only you know, if only you knew what I knew, that there is one. And John lifting his eyes and seeing a man standing as a lamb slain, (laughs) worthy to open the scrolls. His name is Jesus. Father, we thank you, Lord, for sending your son on mission to do something only he could. Only he was worthy and able to wrap himself in flesh and walk perfect enough that his death would satisfy your wrath and crush the beef that you had with us. And we thank you, Lord, that it was enough, that it was enough, and it satisfied all the animosity between us. And we get the benefits of enjoying a relationship with you that will one day never again be marred by sin. And so, Lord, we look forward to that day. But right now, we thank and praise you and uh, revel in the reality of that day that is soon to come. And so all things we pray in the name of the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. I'm a bank teller. I work for Wachovia Bank. Okay. Amen. I usually don't get that when people come to my window, but (laughs) um, one of the things that we deal with very often at a bank is fraud. We deal with a lot of fraud. We deal with a lot of internet fraud, a lot of internet scams. Um, we deal with a lot of just check frauds and everything. And so what, 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 tend to, what tends to happen is the generation that came before most of us don't like to use the internet at all for a number of reasons. One, because a lot of them don't know how to. And two, because they don't trust the internet because of all the fraud. And it doesn't, it doesn't make them feel comfortable, Right. And so what they tend to do is they write checks, which I found out that most of the people in our generation have no clue how to write a check. Like, you'd be surprised how many people come to the bank and have never filled out a check before. But one thing a check does is a check helps us to minimize fraudulent activity. And so what happens is there are a lot of key things on a check. You have the date up top. You have pay to the order of who you're making the check out to. Then at the bottom right-hand corner, you have the signature line. On the bottom left, you have the memo, which isn't too important. And then on the back is where you endorse the check, right? Now, we have a lot of systems that help us to kind of reduce fraud in terms of processing transactions where we can, we can identify whether a check has been scanned multiple times. We can tell where exactly you went to scan the check. We can tell what type of ID you've used when you presented the check. But the most important thing on that check is the signature line for a number of reasons. One, most people do not write the same. The signature is almost like a thumbprint to some extent, right? 
If I was to sign my name on a piece of paper and I had my wife sign her name on a piece of paper, it'd be completely different. And so what happens is when people come to the bank and they present a check, what we can do is pull up a signature card, which is what we have a lot of our customers fill out before, you know, when they open an account. And so if you present, if you came to me and presented me with a check and I pulled up a signature card, one, one of two things is going to happen. Either your signature is going to match what's on that signature card or it's not going to match. And right there it shuts it down. And we use that because the signature card is, like, it identifies who you are more than anything else on the check. Like, you can print your name, but anybody can print your name. Like, printing is more uniform to some extent. You can put a date on the check, but you can cross it out and initial buy it and change the date and we can still process it. Like, you can even mix up the numbers on the check. Like, if you're writing out the dollar amount and then you put the numerical amount, that can even be wrong and you can cross that out and change it in initial buy it and we can accept the, the check. The only thing that can't happen is you can't sign the name and cross it out and sign again. That's the only thing that can't happen. And so the signature becomes the, it becomes that vital piece of the check that determines whether or not we can cash your check. Why? Because the signature for the person whose check it is, is basically a promise to pay. It's a promise to pay up. So as soon as I sign that check, as soon as my signature goes on that check, it becomes a promise for me to pay whatever I've written the check out to be to you. Right? And so today, I want to talk about the incarnation. But in light of Jesus' coming being the fulfillment of a promise that God made to Israel when he told Moses his name and essentially gave him his signature. So let's open up to John chapter 8, if you will, with me. John chapter 8. I'm not going to be long this morning. I know we always say that, but I promise. I put my signature on it. And for my title, people, this is called the covenant-keeping Christ. The covenant, you've got the keeping, and now you've got the Christ. John chapter 8. Jump to, to 40, verse 48. Actually, you know what? Before we go to verse 48, uh, we read most of John chapter 8 in the early, in the early service. So we'll, we'll do the same here because I'm a, I'm a context guy. I love context. I don't want to jump to, this is the end of the conversation that we're going to be dealing with. And so I'd rather, like, let's get the full gravity of the whole conversation so we can know what's, like, what's been going on and kind of where we are. So uh, jump to verse, if you will, verse 12. Um, we're going to do a lot of reading today, so I hope you brought your Bibles with you. Um, so let's go to 12 and let's, let's, let's dive in. <clears throat> Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. And Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I come from and where I'm going, but you do not know where I come from or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge but I and the Father who sent me. In your law is written that the testimony of two people is true. I'm the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. 
And they said to him, therefore, where is your father? And Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not come yet. And so he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. And so the Jews said, will he kill himself? Since he says, where am I, where I am going, you cannot come. And he said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And so they said to him, who are you? Underline that. And Jesus said to them, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world that I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. And so Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And they answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you'll become free? I, I just want to make a note real quick. I don't know what in the world they was thinking when they said that. Like, they have been enslaved by every single human authority on this power. At this very time, they are under Roman authority. So, I'm going to leave that alone. Verse 34, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. And they answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you are Abraham's children, you will be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You were doing the works your father did. And they said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. And Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am he. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? Is it because you cannot bear to hear my word? You are of your father, the devil. It <laughs> And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. It has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. The Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Racial slur. That's what that is. If you know the relationship between the Jews and Samaritans, they had a, a longstanding beef, didn't like each other, both claimed to be children of Abraham. And so for, they knew good and well he was a Jew. So to call him a Samaritan was basically a racial slur. 49, Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it. 
and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. And the Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets, yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets who died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Underline that. Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I don't know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Dang, Jesus be just straight, like, cutting cats. <laughs> <laughs> 56 sorry <laughs> your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day he saw it and was glad and so the Jews said to him you are not yet 50 years old and have you seen Abraham and Jesus said to them truly truly I say to you before Abraham was I am so they picked up stones to throw at him but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. My Lord. Jesus is a G. That's what. <laughs> I don't know where they begin this idea um, that Jesus was a punk dude. Like, I mean, he wasn't necessarily causing trouble, but he was causing trouble. But before Abraham was, I am. Strong words from Jesus. Very strong words. And we can tell that they were so strong that they wanted to kill him. Like, that's how strong it was. See, like, the Yamama jokes, like, they just make you want to fight. Nobody really kills somebody over a Yamama joke. Like, this was, Jesus said something very particular that made them feel as though they would be keeping the law to kill him. Because in order for, like, essentially, this, like, yo, he's blasphemed. Therefore, we have the right to stone this dude, right? So what does Jesus saying this, identifying himself with the great I am, have to do with the incarnation and him wrapping himself in flesh? It's a good question. In order to answer it, let's go to Exodus chapter 3. Let's turn back to Exodus chapter 3. Because this is where we see God for the first time revealing himself as the great I am. And so in order for us to fully grasp what it is that Jesus is saying, we need to take a deep look at what I am means. So let's, like, I told you all we was going to do a lot of reading, so let's start at verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush has not burned. And when the Lord said that he had turned aside, God called him out of the bush, from out of the bush. 
Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off of your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Before we go on, just just a quick note, because this might change how you look at the rest of what we're going to go through today. If you look at verse 2, it says, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in the flame of fire, right? Um, Similarly, if you go down and look at verse 4, it says, the Lord saw and turned, or when the Lord saw that Moses turned aside, and it refers to the angel of the Lord as God, um, and through the, the first five verses. So I'll just point this out. This is debatable as to whether or not this is a Christophany. We would call this a theophany, which is a manifestation or an appearing of God. Um, a Christophany would be a basically a, a, an appearing of Christ pre the incarnation, right? Now this, it's debatable. Some people don't believe it is. Some people do. I'm going to move forward as if I do, because I do. So you don't have to, but I just wanted to make that clear in case some people didn't want to move forward that way. It's not going to matter much to the nature of what we're saying, but it has a nice little twist on it if indeed that this God that is speaking to Moses from out of the bush and identifies himself as the I am is indeed the same Christ who calls himself the I am in John chapter 8. So I just wanted to make that point real quick. So don't crucify me if you don't believe that. I just wanted to let you know. Verse 7. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to do good. uh, Sorry. Out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hevites, the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, But I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent you. And so for the first time, God has identified himself as I am. Now, when he identifies himself as I am, this is is key because in, in Hebrew times, they were very particular about the name that they gave. And so there was a lot of thought, a lot of time, a lot of patience that went into choosing a name. Like if you look in the text most times, especially Old Testament, if you see somebody being born and them being given, an, given a name and their name meaning something, more times than not, they end up being or personality-wise, character-wise, having the same exact like meaning 
or personality that their name has. I don't know how that happens, but it happens. And so for them, there was a lot that went into choosing a name. Now, for us, we don't do the same thing. Like, today, we pick names based off of popularity, like um, what names are popular. Like, we, if we can't decide on a name with our, uh, with our spouse, we, like, might roll some dice or, like, pick, draw from a hat or something like that. And so, uh, like I was telling the, the earlier gathering, it'd probably be better for us to just have numbers, right? I'm being like, say, say there's 100 people in here. Not a hundred people, but maybe there are. I don't want to. I don't want to use an example because this might work against what I'm trying to say. But just assume that there's a 150 people in here. If I said all the Tiffany's stand up, you could get like four Tiffany's. You could get like. Or is there more than one? I just want to check. Now, don't use this as my. If your name is Tiffany, raise your hand. Just one. All right. Don't 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 worry about that. But <laughs> I'm just saying for my experiment, right? It, there could be. Like, if, you, if you're in a large crowd of people and you say a common name or a popular name, like, you might have four or five of the same people, right? If you ask everybody to stand up. Like, I know sometimes I'm in a crowd and somebody could be calling Curtis and I'm looking around and they're talking to somebody completely different. And I thought I had, you know, I thought my name wasn't that, you know, unique. Absolutely. No, French, come on, man. And so, but like, say, say I was to say, Number six eight seven four five three. Stand up. It's only gonna be one person with that number. And so for us, it's not like for us, it's not that like we don't take names that seriously. Like they chose names for completely different reasons. And so when so when God when we see here God using this name, this particular name, I am. There's a reason for it. And so let's look at let's look at what this means. So stay with me here because I don't. I don't know Greek or Hebrew, and so this is just for my study. So if I mispronounce some words, like, I'm just letting y'all know that. So, I am. In the Hebrew text, the Hebrew, the Hebrew alphabet doesn't have, or only has consonants, right? And so in the Hebrew text, I am as, or the Lord, because he identifies I am the Lord. Um, so the Lord uh, is spelled Y-H-W-H which is where we would get our pronunciation Yahweh from. The Lord, Yahweh, I am. And in three occurrences in, in verse 14 where he uses I am, the, the, the verb form is Hayah. I'm going to spell it because the other one is very similar too. So the, the verb form that he uses is Hayah, which is H, H-A-Y-A-H, and it means to be. Right. And so most scholars have suggested there are a few different meanings for the verb form of this translation of Yahweh to be. Right. So stick with me. Here's the here's the four. One, God is self-existent and not dependent on anything else for his own existence. Two, God is the creator and sustainer of all that exists. Now, these aren't separate ones. These are, they're saying that these all encompass Hayat to be, the Yahweh. Um, three, immutable, or God is immutable, and thus is not in the process of becoming something different than he already is. Should I read that one again? God is immutable 
and thus is not in the process of becoming something different than he already is. Hebrews 13, 8 says he's the same yesterday, today, and forever, right? And the last one, God is eternal in his existence and transcends time and space. And so as, as scholars look at this word, hayah, to be, they get these different, these different, like all of these combined are describing what it is that God is saying he is. Self-existent, the creator and sustainer of everything else that exists, immutable and eternal in his existence. Everybody with me? Y'all still with me? Good. Now, while each of these things is true, and we would agree with all of these things, there's something a little bit more that he's saying to Moses than just this. And so, as we, as we, as, as historical, like as the scriptures have been written historically, some things have been, some things have changed in terms of understanding what exactly was said when God says, I am. And I'll tell you why that happened. What happened was during the intertestamental period, while the, while the Jews were under, uh, Assyrian and Babylonian, you know, bondage, enslavement, which is why back in, John chapter 8, I don't know why you would say that we've never been enslaved to anybody, but <clears throat> during the intertestamental period, what happened was they took on a lot of the rituals that the Assyrians and Babylonians took on. And so what would happen is they, they would stop saying the name of God because for them or for the, what they gathered from the Babylonians and the Assyrians was to say the name of a God that you serve or the deity that you serve is in some ways to hold this, a type of power over it. And so for them, so for them, what they said was, okay, where, wherever we see the word Yahweh, we're not going to say Yahweh because for us, like, that word is too holy and we don't want to say it. And so what happened was, instead of saying Yahweh, they spoke Adonai, which means what? Lord or Master. And so when we got the Septuagint, which was the first Greek translation, when they saw the word Adonai, Adonai translated in the Greek is kurios, which means Lord or Master, right? And so we have Jesus, I mean, not Jesus, I'm sorry, let me, I'm not, we have God, <laughs> who I believe was the second person of the Godhead, but we have God identifying himself as the great I am, Hayat, to be. And then during the intertestamental periods, because his name was too holy, they substituted the word kurios, well, not kurios, Adonai in Hebrew, that means Lord or Master, and eventually when it got to the Greek, kurios for Lord or Master, to the, to the name Yahweh. The only problem is it loses something. Like we, like there is, like there's more to what, when we say Lord or Master, we are essentially ascribing an office or title to God. When God is talking to Moses and he said, tell them that I am sent you, he has to be saying more than tell them that a God who has a position or a title sent you. He didn't just want them to know his name positionally. 
Like it wasn't about the title. It wasn't about them just knowing his name as a title or position. Like they already had gods like that. They already had gods like that. And so we, it, loses, it loses a little something. And so when we go back, when we go back and we look at what, when, when we kind of piece some of the scriptures together, we look at what he's actually saying. I believe the correct verbiage in Hebrew to identify I am or Yahweh would be ayah. Not haya, but aya. I'll, I'll spell it in case you want to write it down. It's apostrophe, E-H-Y-E-H. As opposed to haya, which is H-A-Y-A-H. It means to be. Aya, or I don't know how to pronounce that. But apostrophe, E-H-Y-E-H, means I will be. Do y'all see the difference? To be. I will be, as in, if you look at verse 12, he says what? He said, God said, but I will be with you, which gives the same sense, like when, when, when he says that I am the Lord, Yahweh, he's essentially, it gives off the same sense that he's saying, I will be with you just as I was with them. With them who? The fathers that he's talking about in, in verse 6 of chapter 3. He said, I am the God of your father, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And so it gives the sense of I will be. I will be with you just as I was with them. And so if we move on understanding I am or Yahweh as I will be as opposed as to be, we have essentially switched and I I want y'all to stay with me. To be is a proper usage of the verb. So I'm not saying that that's wrong. What I'm saying is when God was telling Abraham something, he was saying something completely more holistic and comprehensive than I exist eternally. Let's look at, for instance, when when we see the covenant name for God, we see Yahweh often associated with the Ark of the Covenant, the temple, many of the uh, historical, like, pinnacles of Jewish society. But before that, in Egypt, Egypt was basically a land of, it was a land of the gods. It was a land of the gods, almost like America is today. You could go, it's a smorgasbord. You could pick what you wanted, right? And so they were used to gods. They were used to the existence of gods, little g, and, I mean, for all intents and purposes, even though we know that they're not gods, they are gods because the hearts of men have made them gods. And so they, the people of Israel, Pharaoh, Moses, they were already accustomed to God's existing. So why would God give them his name to identify them as his people and him as their God and yet only say, I am in terms of I exist eternally? What, like, what is significant about that? He, he's done nothing to separate himself from the rest of the gods that they already serve. That's why Moses asked him, when I go to these people, like, who do I tell them you are? Which God do I tell them you are? And he says, I am. But not I am to be, which encompasses all that, but I will be. I will be signifies promise. 
That's where we get the covenant name of God from. Yahweh is the covenant name for God. I will be. It's a promise. His name essentially is a promise to be. Yahweh, the covenant name for God, basically says, I am the one who keeps promise. I am the one who is always faithful. I am the one who is here for you. I am the one who acts on your behalf. This is what he was saying. It wasn't just merely, I exist eternally. It wasn't merely just, I'm changeless. It was, I will be. He was promising himself to Israel. He was promising to do something on behalf of Israel. That's why the backdrop is saying, I've heard the cries of my people. And I'm going to deliver them. I will. It's a promise. And so existence wasn't the issue. Let me read this from Albert Bayless. Stay with me. Let me read this from Albert Bayless. After God gives his, his name to Moses... Some things happens. He tells Moses to go into the land of Egypt, and then he goes about beginning to set free Israel through what? The plagues, right? So stay with me. These plagues, Albert, this is Albert Bayless. These plagues vindicate Yahweh as the one true God in the land of gods, a land ruled by a pharaoh regarded as the incarnate son of the god Ray. In fact, many of the individual plagues directly demonstrate Yahweh's power over the gods. The Nile River was considered sacred, yet it was turned to blood. Associated with the river were the gods Num, Happy, Osiris, for whom the Nile served as his bloodstream. The goddess Hecht, the wife of Num, was represented as a frog. And there was a sky goddess Nut, from whose domain came the hail. Isis and Seth, responsible in part for agricultural crops, seemed to have been overwhelmed. A number of gods were identified with the sun, including the sun god Ray. Certainly these gods failed in allowing a heavy darkness to blanket Egypt for three days. The name Yahweh means that God can be grasped and understood only by his action and his words. Only his action reveals his presence and character. Humanity cannot discover it or forge it. We can know God and learn of his true nature only through his acts on our behalf. By giving his name to Israel, Yahweh is saying, if you want to know me, you will have to watch my actions and listen to my words. My faithfulness to my covenant name is the key to my character. My faithfulness to my covenant name is the key to my character. We see in the plagues, God isn't just telling them, I exist. He's saying, I'm going to show you that I exist. If we, if we look at Isaiah 44, it's basically a mockery of false gods. Like, who are you, man, that goes into the woods and cuts down a tree? You use some of it to heat your house and keep you warm. You use the other some of it to cook your food. And the rest you carve into an idol? And so they were used to gods, but they were used to gods who had mouths but couldn't speak, ears but couldn't hear, and eyes but couldn't see, and they could do nothing, absolutely nothing, to act on their behalf or anybody else's behalf. And so here we have a God promising himself through his name to act on their behalf by delivering them. 
And so what he does to identify, like to distinguish himself from the rest is the plagues. That's how he distinguishes himself. He says, okay, you have a God for the Nile. I'm going to turn it into blood. I'm going to show you my superiority. You have a Nile for the, I mean, you have a God for the, for the, for the uh, atmosphere. I'm going to smash them too. You have a God for the crops. I'm going to smash them as well. Pharaoh is a God, so to speak. I'm going to take his son. This is God acting on behalf of Israel, showing himself, like showing, like showing them basically, like I gave you a name. My name promises to act on your behalf. Now I want you to watch me do it. <clears throat> Jump to uh, Exodus chapter 6 with me. I'm almost done. It'll be a couple more minutes. Told you I was going to be short today. God makes a few promises to, is, to Moses on behalf of Israel that connect us with the beauty of the incarnation, if y'all can't already see it. Um, verse 2 of chapter 6, Exodus. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord, I am Yahweh. I appear to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groanings of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I remembered my covenant. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, Yahweh, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. The, the promise, the promise of God giving his name wasn't solely for, their, for, for them like coming into Can uh, taking over the land of Canaan. Like he wanted their freedom from slavery. He wanted to give them their own land that he had promised to them. But it didn't stop there. There was more to that than, the, than just that. If that was the purpose, then when, when, when they got to the land, like why didn't he just leave them alone? In Deuteronomy, he says to them, he says, I'm about to give you back over to be enslaved again because, like, you don't serve me with the joy in your heart. It's more, like, for him, the promise of deliverance, the promise of redemption, the promise to be with them was more than just giving them new land and getting them from under Egypt. And so we see that in the beauty of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Like, when he says, I will be with you, I will be. Haya, I will be with you. What greater act of God being with us is there than Christ coming and wrapping himself in flesh? The only way for, in, in verse, in, in chapter, chap, look at verse, chapter 6, sorry. Look at verse 7. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. It's impossible, comprehensively impossible 
for us to be the people of God and God to be for, for us to be the people of God and for God to be our God unless he comes in the flesh. We are eternally separated from him. The only way it's possible for us to fully and truly be his people is Christ had to wrap himself in the flesh. He had to live a perfect life and he had to die on the cross. Otherwise, we're still disconnected. And so when we look at the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ, we have to see it as the fulfillment of a promise that God made to Israel when he gave them his name. It has to be. And so I'll end with with this real quick. I'll say this and I'll sit down. In terms of when when it relates to, as it relates to the incarnation and the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who was God became flesh and blood with all the limitations of space and time, all its physical handicaps of fatigue, hunger, and susceptibility to, the, uh, to earthly existence. The power that called the world into being takes on the weakness of createdness. The one who is truly God is now so truly man that the word flesh can be used to describe him. What greater act says, I will be your God, or I will be with you, than this? Let's pray. Father, the beauty of you coming and wrapping yourself in finiteness, just the thought of the created thing containing you. (laughs) Ah, Lord, if it had not been for a gracious, loving God, to even have the heart to redeem a people that rebelled against him. Where would we be? And so, Lord, we thank you for the body of the Lord Jesus Christ that was ripped to shreds on our behalf, in our place. And, God, we pray that the glory and the beauty of the second person of the Godhead would never become dull to us and that we would see the incarnation as a beautiful promise fulfilled when you gave us your name and identified yourself as the covenant-keeping God of promise. And so, Lord, we worship you and we praise you. Be glorified in all that we do and think. In Christ's name, amen. Let's prepare our hearts for communion. Fellas, you can come.